0: That was very good, Kate. Thank you. Yeah. The scriptures are very good, but really helpful to be read well. Uh, I've got uh, just some really encouraging news before we start. It was great to hear uh, Garth and the story of um, serving amongst us and so many that are wonderfully serving. But uh, I just thought I'd share your news too about the great encouragement it is to report that uh, two months ago, I think we were $150,000 behind on our budget. Do you remember the news about the deficit uh, well, at the end of the last month, we were only 30,000 or 33,000 behind budget. Isn't that extraordinary? Praise God. And um, it's, uh, it's just the incredible uh, heart that God is working amongst you and, uh, and us. And just uh, we pray that he continues. It's a great sign of, um, of God's grace at work amongst us. So we're we so thrilled to be part of it. Continue to give. We're still behind, and we've got another six. We've got the rest of our. We've got another fifty years of this work together. So we keep doing it and keep pressing forward and uh, keep stretching every year. And you'll keep hearing us push and so on because we want to reach many more for the cause of Christ. How about I pray, Father? We do thank you so much for your many blessings amongst us. We. Um, it's just uh, such a wonder to be uh, to see your Spirit genuinely at work in people's lives, changing us to be more and more like Christ. We pray for much more of it, please. And uh, ask this morning that you would use your word to that end, that you would cause us to be stirred, to uh, to know you better, to love you more, to honour you as we ought. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, wow, we're um, we're coming into this very exciting book. Uh, who's looking forward to this? It's uh, fantastic. I, um, I love this. I don't know who did this, but um, it wasn't me, that's for sure. But isn't that impressive? Do You know what that looks like? A storm. It's just It's brilliant, isn't it? And uh, very, very clever. We're coming to this fantastic book, the book of Job. Uh, uh, It's it's one of the most amazing books in the Bible. It's an extraordinary piece of work, uh, written so many centuries ago. People keep thinking we're getting smarter and smarter. No, no, no. We we were way smarter back then. And uh, Job is an extraordinary book. It's an unusual book. It has some action in it. But the action only takes place in the first couple of chapters. Um, The rest of it, and the action that happens, is heart-rending. Uh, as, you, as Kate read for us, you, you see someone lose everything and uh, it's devastating. Uh, he goes through the most horrendous sufferings imaginable. And after that, after those first two chapters, it's all conversation. Uh, and so it's just, it's constant discussions between Job and his comforters, who find we find are not such a great comfort, and then it finishes with a conversation, a word from God at the very end. It's an astonishing piece of literature, piece of writing, uh, piece of reporting, as it reports for us uh, these events and what occurred. Um, it's unusual, but it is truly one of the most beautiful books of the Bible because it provides some of the most important helps to live a life in the context of suffering. Have a look with me just at chapter, uh, have a look at chapter 7. Grab your Bibles there. Job, easy to find, just before the psalm. So if you're... Job 7. I, there's just so many places you could drop into and, and see some of this um, uh, to pick up these thoughts. Uh, look, chapter 7, verse 3. I've been allotted months of futility and nights of misery have been assigned to me. When I lie down, I think, how long before I get up? The nights drag on and I toss and turn until dawn. Who has been in that place of such suffering and agony, the long night of the darkness, soul, where you just you cry, you weep, you suffer, you struggle... Uh, this is a book that will speak to us in all of those contexts. It's an astonishing book that is raw and real and honest. It's just, uh, it really is quite, quite powerful and beautiful. Um, if you've come this morning with suffering, then uh, this will be a great blessing. But it will be a great blessing to all of us because we'll all go through uh, the dark night of the soul. We'll all lose and suffer at some point. Now, how will it be a blessing to us? At the very least, it'll be a blessing to you uh, by telling you you're not alone. You're not the only one who is suffering. Others have suffered with you and, and uh, very great pain and grief. Many have been on this same journey. And there is something of comfort in comfort shared, in, in grief shared. There is just something powerfully comforting that others have been on the journey with us. Uh, to hear that a deeply godly man feel what, feels what he feels, as we'll go through this, a deeply godly man who suffers and grieves and questions and wonders and hurts. Uh, To feel what he feels just reminds us we're not alone. Uh, And to hear his journey will help you be prepared for your journey. It will come. It will come. Uh, But he helps us in deeper ways. And Jamie warned us about this. It helps us in deeper ways. This book is very confronting. And these first two chapters are some of the most confronting parts of this book. It gets to the end and it's very confronting again. It's confronting about the way humans think. It will confront us about the way we think about ourselves. It'll confront us about the way we think about God. And it'll confront us about popular Christianity. There's a kind of Christianity around, around the world, the Western world, that's very popular. Uh, you might be part of it. Uh, and this will, re- this will just tear that apart. It is hugely confronting um, and But in all of that confrontation, here's where we're going to end this morning, with with comfort, because the confrontation actually gives us the grounds to have the greatest comfort. It may not feel it on the way through, but we're going to land with a great comfort that comes from it all. Um, But I do want to keep warning us, it will be confronting. Some amongst us may find this morning very difficult. Um, You might find it quite disturbing and and shattering and changing. It's going to be be like... um, uh, surgery, I don't know, you, you without anesthetic. <laughs> you know I mean? I'm going to try and hold your hand as we do it. But, uh, you know, it'll be a stick in your teeth and grit down on it as we go through. Um, you, you know the difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping? Have you heard this little thing? Um, that The peacekeeper never deals with the problems, never deals and just lives with this kind of unrelenting unhappiness about things, not really being. But the peacemaker goes at the hard things to bring the issues to the surface, to bring real peace and lasting peace. That's what the book, of, the book of Job's going to do for us today. It's not a peacekeeping book, it's a peacemaking book. It's going to go at the hard things and I'm going to draw those to the surface. And uh, if you don't like this morning, um, I, just want to, I just want to say it's not my fault. It's, uh, it's the book of Job and, uh, and if I do my job well we'll see what it actually has to say. Now let, let me go through it with that introduction, Job chapter 1, let's set the scene. There's a few little small pieces just to put in place before some of the big pieces and then I'll take you through the guts of it. The small pieces to put in place, verse 1, in the land of ours. Where's the land of ours? At best we can tell from other uses of that word, it's east of Israel. Uh, So that kind of puts it geographically. There lived a man whose name was Job. Uh, We've got various evidences that this man was a real historical figure. He's mentioned in other contexts alongside of historical figures. Uh, We don't know exactly the date when this all occurred. Um, People have all kinds of different... Because there's no date to it. So is it kind of at the time of Abraham, uh, that that kind of period of history? Is it Moses? Where, Where is it in history? We don't know. It's very old. Um, So a long time before Jesus, many, many centuries before Jesus to put it in place there. Now there's some of the uh, simple, straightforward stuff. But then what follows is the really important introduction about Job. Uh, Two things are told us about the person of Job which we need to get under our belts. Have a look there, uh, the second half of verse 1. This man, here we go, this man was blameless, upright, he feared God and shunned evil. Four little ideas that are deeply important to appreciate that this man was a good and godly man a good and godly man and secondly he was richly blessed, richly blessed. Uh, You can see there he had seven sons and three daughters, many suggest that's the ideal family. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yuck oxen, he had a large number of servants, he was the greatest man among all the peoples of the east. He was very good and godly And he was richly blessed. Now, he is richly blessed in the Old Testament sense of blessing. You know there's a difference from the Old Testament blessing and the New Testament blessing. If you don't know, you need to know this. Old Testament blessing was material. New Testament blessing is spiritual. Eternity will be both end. But the Old Testament, New Testament has a pattern of this. He was Old Testament richly blessed uh, with much good, uh, a great and beautiful family and so on. And uh, the summary is he's the greatest man of the East, very good and richly blessed. Now those two facts become critically important as we go through this whole book um, because it tells us that that all that occurs is not an act of judgment on him. And it's underlined as you go a little bit further there, uh, verse 4 and 5, his sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, ancient world celebrated birthdays, there you are. And they would invite three sisters to eat and drink with them. Uh, When a period of feasting had run at course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the mornings he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job regular's custom. This is all just introduction for us to understand that the person of Job, is very good and godly and he's good and godly to the very heart. That is to say, he cares about heart religion. He is not just into superficialities. He cares about the possibility that one of his kids might have sinned in their hearts. It deeply matters to him that people are right before God and pleasing God, very good and richly blessed. These two two truths undergird almost everything that now happens through the rest of the book. So as as we go through the conversations chapter after chapter, fundamental that you get that those two facts in place, very godly good and richly blessed in a material way. But then verse 6 the action happens. And here's where it starts. Uh, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, we have now a conversation. Um, And here's where we move into confrontational territory. This is when we're going to really uh, see things hot up a bit. Uh, This is a courtroom scene in heaven. The angels come, Satan is with them or the Satan. Uh, the word Satan in Hebrew means accuser, the accuser, the Satan comes. A conversation's had between God and Satan. Now one of the questions that people are asking is, is this literally true? Is this literally, is there a courtroom? Is God is standing? Is this literally the case? Well, it's true. The idea of literalism is a very tricky one um, Especially when you're dealing with a God who is non-material, spirit, eternal, omniscient, omnipresent. Uh, How do you talk about God who's all of that in a way that we can fathom and understand? For instance, he says, um, verse 7, where have you come from? Literal? Well, how does the omniscient, all-knowing God, have to ask where Satan's come from? Do you see a little, just a... Literal, it's true. What's been conveyed here is true, it's real. There is a malevolent power called Satan, the great accuser. Uh, There there are angelic hosts and and this truth of this conversation is real and we are given to see it. Um, They have a conversation and God says to Satan, uh, verse 8, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him he is blameless and upright a man who fears God and shuns evil. Do you see this constant repetition Job is a good and godly man. Satan responds the great accuser and he brings an accusation. Does God Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand, strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. What you have is an accusation from Satan against this man, Job. But we'll see a little bit further. The accusation goes more broadly than that. So God gives him, verse 12, permission very well. Everything he has is in your hands, in your power, but the man himself do not lay a finger on him. And then from verse 15 all the way down to verse 19, everything is taken. His oxen, his sheep, his servants and then his whole family killed. And he receives news of it. And look at his response there in verse 21. Naked I came from my father's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave... And the Lord has taken away, may the name of the Lord be praised. Astonishing. They are the most powerful and wonderful words, aren't they? Um, A <laughs> bit of trivia. I ran away from home when I was about 12 or was 10 or something like this. And, um, and the only verse of the Bible I think my father knows is, uh, is the first half of verse 21. And as I was threatening to leave, he said, Well, naked you came, naked you're going. And he, he made, made me take off my clothes before I ran away. But um, <coughs> it was a good, was a clever move. But um, <laughs> if you're watching, Dad, <laughs> very clever. Um, but an extraordinary response from this man. Chapter 2. On another day, the angels came and presented themselves before, uh, before the Lord. The Satan was there again. Uh, And it's repeated. Job says, uh, have a look at my my servant Job, verse 3. He still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without reason. And so Satan pushes it further, verse 4. A man will give all he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord says, very well, he is in your hands, but you must not take his life. Again, Job responds to all of this, and you see an extraordinary thing there in verse 10 Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? It's beautiful. Now, what do we make of it all? Three things. Three very confronting observations. Are you ready? The first one is God's sovereignty. Who's responsible for the suffering Job endures? Who's responsible for the suffering Job endures? Now there's an easy answer and a popular answer and then there's the Bible's answer. The easy answer, the popular Christian answer is Who's responsible? Satan. He brings the accusation, he goes out and does the deed and God in chapter 2 verse 3 lays the blame at him. Um, though, uh, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. The simple answer, the popular Christian answer is Satan is responsible for the suffering that Job endures. But the biblical answer is far more complex Notice with care verse 11. Have a look at verse 11 and this is Satan's statement. Stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Who is doing the striking in verse 11? God. Satan says to God, you stretch out your hand and strike him. And then verse 12... The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Satan goes out and does his work, but he only does what God has permitted him to do. God gave him permission to do this work. Who's responsible for suffering? The suffering of Job. When God permits what he could have forbidden, he therefore wills it. When God permits what he could have forbidden, he therefore has chosen to will it. Do you see? If God could have stopped it but doesn't, it's because he didn't want to stop it. If he has the power to prohibit, as he clearly does, then that he doesn't prohibit is his willing. And Job's response in verse 21, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job didn't sin by charging God with wrongdoing. It wasn't wrong of Job to say it was the Lord who took away. Now, noting this more difficult truth about what the Bible presents is hugely confronting. And it's hugely confronting to popular Christianity. It doesn't fit with how popular Christianity thinks about God or wants to think about God. Popular Christianity lives with a kind of dualism, a very simplistic dualism where all the good stuff and nice stuff happens by God and all the bad stuff, the difficult stuff, the hurtful stuff happens by Satan and popular Christianity has this kind of concept of a dualistic universe where there's two competing powers, there's the good God, the good and lovely God and then there's the powerful and evil Satan and these two are at war in some kind of arm wrestle. And sometimes uh, God has the upper arm, upper, upper hand, and sometimes Satan gets the upper hand. And so when the storm and fire comes, it's Satan who's wrestled control. But when the fires are put out and people are saved and rescued, it's God finally making good of what Satan has ruined. And so the tussle goes on throughout history in popular Christian mind. And so whatever's nice and good and beautiful, it's God. Whatever's painful, difficult and bad is Satan. Satan. And that's a simple way of protecting God because God is never never involved in evil things. He's trying to actually fix it up. Satan makes the mess and God comes along and fixes it all up. And then he's over here and God comes and fixes it up. And and you get this kind of dualistic power struggle between good and evil. It's a very simplistic, a very obvious, very easy way to think about the world because the world looks like it's got two powers at work, good and evil. But this simple dualism just does not survive the Bible's testimony. When God permits what he could have forbidden, in some sense he is therefore willed that it happens. And more than this, as we'll come to in the next Confronting Truth, God puts Job forward. There are deep things happening here. And you get the richer testimony of the Bible. Come with me to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. Look at verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Satan is not a power. He is not some competing force against me, the Lord of the universe. Verse 7, I form light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 14, chase it up later. Um, Good and bad, God has made them both. He has made one as well as the other. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 38. Is it not not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamity and good things come? It is. It is. If you've got your finger still there in Isaiah 45, have a look there at verse 9. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but pots, shards, (laughs) among the pot shards on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does the work say to the potter, he has no hands? Woe to him who says to a father, what have you begotten, or to a mother? He is the one who does what he does. It's his throne room that the Satan comes to, to bring accusation. And it's God who permits, as the sovereign God of the universe, God gives and he takes. He rules the universe and all of existence as the absolute monarch. There is no, there is no tussle in the heavenlies where God is somehow being defeated. He is the only true power. There is no other power that threatens or competes. He is the Lord. There is no other. He is the great I Am. Now, this is confronting for popular Christianity because God is now no longer the soft and warm and cuddly God of the child. He is the supreme Lord of the universe And what do we do with that God? Well, popular Christianity rebels. How could we ever love a God like that? If we see God as sovereign like that, that threatens us. Because if God is that kind of power, what place do I have as a power in the universe? None. None. We are just the clay in the hands of the potter. Why why is popular Christianity so threatened by this? Because in part we want a world where we can control and we want a God who is nice and good to us but we somehow have some power, we're alongside... No, no, no. God is the terrifying God of the universe. Every day he orders and ordains... But here's the thing, it's because of that truth that we have the only hope for real comfort which I'm going to come back to in a moment. There's the first confronting truth that God is the sovereign God of the universe. Let me give you the second confronting truth. God's glory. You think more deeply with me about the conversation that occurs in verse uh, 8 9 and 10. And notice the accuser's accusation that Satan brings to God about Job. Look at verse 9. Does Job fear you for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him, his household, and everything he does? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to face. Now, you think with me about what's going on with that accusation. Who is Satan actually accusing in that accusation? Who is his accusation actually levelled at? It looks like it's levelled at Job, but who really is the target? God. How is it God? Um, Well, an older man persuades a woman to say yes to marriage. She expresses love and affection and enthusiasm for the marriage. But someone comes to the man and says, she's only saying yes because you're wealthy. Who feels the pain of that accusation? The man. Who's being criticised? Well, both of them. We'll come to the second in a moment, but most especially who's being criticised is the man. What's being said of him is, if it weren't for your money, she would never be interested in you because you're not of sufficient worth in and of yourself to have someone love you, except that you give them lots of things. Do you see now the accusation that Satan's bringing? You are not worthy, says Satan, the great accuser, you are not worthy of human praise and worship without buying their praise. Job only praises you because you've bought it from him. You've given him everything he has. Friends, this book, the book of Job, the big thing in the book of Job is not Job and his suffering, though it is a big thing. The big thing in the book of Job is God and his glory. That's what the book's about. And you won't get anything that happens throughout this book until you really see that this is the big thing underneath it all and you won't get the true comfort that comes from the book of Job until you see this truth, because there's comfort in this, and I'm going to show you that towards the end. You see, the thing that moves God into action, and an action he initiates, have you seen my servant Job? Well, go and take it from him. God initiates this action. The thing that drives God into action is the challenge that Satan brings to his glory. And it'll be the proving of Job's faith. We'll come to that shortly. The real issue throughout the book of Job is what is God worth? Is he worthy of human praise, even if humans don't benefit from it? That's the issue. This is massive. Can you? This is massive. Popular Christianity is totally outraged by this part of the book of Job. Why? Because it notices the astonishing thing that's assumed at this point and if you've not picked it up yet, let's see if we can bring it to the surface because it's sitting there, let's bring it to the surface. It's the awareness that God seems to think Job's comfort and pleasure and happiness is less important than God's glory being proven to be of great account. Isn't that sitting there? That is to say, God says, to prove that I am a God worthy of praise, even though people don't get anything from me, I'm going to take everything from Job and I'm going to put him through the most horrendous suffering because his happiness and joy and peace in life is less important than me being seen to be glorious. Isn't that what's going on in this book? Don't you see it and feel it? That's exactly what's going on in this book. And popular Christianity is outrage. Why? Because in the mind of popular Christianity, there's nothing more important than human happiness. That there's nothing more important than that we are given by God all that we need and want. And if he should fail to give me what I need and want, then the problem's his, not mine. How dare he? Because popular Christianity still lives with the notion that at the centre of the universe is me. And if God is there, he ought to be about me. And the book of Job uncovers... It brings to the surface that popular Christian problem. That it's, if we don't come to terms with, we are lost. It brings to the surface the truth about who God is again. That he is God and there is no other. He is the potter, we are the clay. He is free, Romans chapter 9. He is free to do whatever he pleases in his universe because you're just a piece of his creation. That's all you are. You are a, a thing he has made. He towers over you. He owes you nothing. He is God. You're just a creature and a sinful one. One of the dangers with popular Christianity is that it comes to God, not because of the worth and glory and greatness of God, but because of what God gives them. Popular Christianity comes with a hidden agenda, which is, I'm coming to him to have him serve me. Whereas Jesus died for us that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Popular Christianity adds God in to my life as I pursue the life I want to live and I take God along with me on the adventure that's my life. But biblical Christianity will have none of that. He is God. It's confronting, it's confronting. What is God to you? Do you see who it is we're dealing with? We we so naturally have great thoughts about ourselves and small thoughts about God. Well, Job, the book of Job, tears that apart. It says to our world, I am God. You are not. I made you for my glory. The most important thing in existence is that I be glorified, not you. I saved you for my glory, and my glory I will not give to another. I'm just quoting text after text. You see, the conversation is actually causing us to have an experience of seeing who God truly is, He is the center of all things. And conversion, becoming a Christian, is repenting of living for myself. And it's coming to the realization that I need now to put him at the center of my world, not me. Are you able to say, he is the potter, I'm the clay? My life is his to do with as he pleases. Are you able to say that? This is hugely confronting the glory of God that matters so much to God that human happiness is secondary. It's almost offensive, isn't it, to popular Christianity? But it's the inescapable truth that emerges from the book of Job. Confronting, but there's comfort in it. Let me get to the comfort shortly. Hold on. Third, the accusation that, Job, that Satan brings is first and foremost against God but it's also against Job and his faith. It claims that Job's faith is insincere, it's superficial, it's the faith of popular Christians that only comes to God to get what they get from God, it only comes because God gives us toys and it raises the question for us this morning about our own faith. Why are you a Christian? Why have you come to Jesus? What kind of faith do you have? What, what kind of uh, concerns do you have? Are you interested in God only because of what he gives you? These are massive questions. Now, it's complex too. This whole thing is complex. It's complex too because when you come to God, he promises to bless you. Come to me all who labor and are heavy burdened and I will give you rest. For, for, for the joy of, a, of um, the, the great treasure a man sells, all he has that he might have that treasure, which is the kingdom of God. Yeah, there's much blessing to be had. But how you, you, it's critical that you distinguish between coming for the toys I get and coming for the God who is, who blesses me. And let me give an illustration that I think captures this, it's from Spurgeon, that great preacher of many centuries ago. Listen to Spurgeon, he talks about a gardener who presents his king with the greatest carrot he has ever grown. Comes to the king in his throne room and brings this incredible produce and lays it at the king's feet and says, King... I just, I honour you, I, I, I love your, your rule and I just want to, to honour your rule with the first fruits of my labour. The king is touched and responds by giving the gardener a large plot of land. There's a nobleman who's watching on, witnessing this event and he puts it together and says, wow, he brings a great carrot and gets a great block of land. Well, I'm gonna bring a great horse, a gift of my uh, first fruits. And he decides it would be an advantage to him to present to the king what he has as his finest. And so he does it. He comes to the king and he lays, brings his horse, and he says, Here's my finest horse, O king. And the king merely thanks him. The nobleman's confused. And so the king explains to him, that gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Do you see the difference? The gardener came to give me something and I honoured the heart that honoured me. But the nobleman came to give that he might gain. So the gift of the horse was really a gift to himself and the king had the discernment to see. Why have you come to Christ? Why do you follow this God? Are you like the gardener or the nobleman? Job challenges us at this deepest level. Have we come to God because he's rich or have we come to him because of who he is? The God of the universe, our maker, our creator, our sustainer, our lover, the one who has given his only son for us. Do we come to him because of who he is or because of what we gain? Now it's complex because this God is a humble God and he will have you even with your failed motives. But I want to get you to dig around in your heart for a moment tonight, today because th- there's comfort to be found if you dig properly here. Could you say, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Could you say that? Or are you only following this Lord because he gives and you'll resent him and reject him if he takes could you say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Could you say that? With the loss of a child. With the loss of a husband or a wife that you love and cherish. With the loss of your job, your health, the cancer comes. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Bless. could you say that? Shall we receive only good from the Lord and not also trouble? Could you say that? Now, it's a tough question, isn't it? Because many of us are sitting there thinking, I don't know if I can. Be honest. But here's the thing do you want to be able to say that? Do you hope under God you could say that? Well, if so, He's got you. Praise God for the work in your life, failed, frail, fallible though we are. He doesn't demand perfection. But he wants you to come to him for who he is. There are very two different things, popular Christianity and biblical Christianity. Popular Christianity pursues the things of God only in so far as it makes my life better. Add a bit of spirituality because I've got so many other beautiful things and I just have this gap in my life and I want... Popular Christianity will not survive. Biblical Christianity says, die to self and live for him who died for us. Now, where's the comfort in all of this? How is all of this comforting? The sovereignty of God. Brothers and sisters, the God we trust in is the absolute sovereign over all things. There is no other power that can threaten him or threaten you. And there is the grounds for your comfort. When you suffer great loss, he is with you right there. This is not his plans thrown apart by some evil power who's stuck his fingers in and messed things up and God's going, oh no, I wanted plan A, but now plan God is sovereign, even over your dumb choices. There's comfort there to be had. When you are in the hospital and the, 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 the child is lost or the, 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 the um, diagnosis comes that you've only... Right there, God is in that. He is sovereign. The world is not lost. You are not lost to him. You can stand firm, the God who is your refuge and strength. Sovereignty brings great comfort. The glory of God, how is that a comfort? How is the fact that he is more concerned about his glory than you, a comfort to you? I'll tell you how. God's glory is most gloriously seen. In him, the God who is gracious and forgiving to repentant sinners. It is to his glory that he receives humble, repentant sinners and shows grace and mercy to sinners. That's what makes him glorious. And if his glory is the thing that matters most to him, you know what is most concerning, what what, what demands that he'll receive you? His own glory. The fact that you, you are on your bed at night, weeping and crying in that terrible dark night of the soul, and there's this dreadful moment where you, you, you hate your life, you feel you're a worm, you're not a man, you're not a woman, you're, you're miserable, you're not worthy. Right at that point, the glory of God is your hope. That he cares about his glory more than you is your hope. Why? Because it's to his glory that he saves you and keeps you and brings you to the end. And so you can be sure he will, not because of you and anything that's in you, but because of his glory is at stake. Do you see how it's powerful? I can rest in the fact that it matters to him, it's his glory at stake, that he receives sinners graciously, that he holds sinners graciously. And so I trust not in myself, but in him and his honour, because that's what's at stake. What a powerful anchor to hold me. Brothers and sisters, our only hope is God and who he is, which makes him glorious and worth selling everything to have, losing everything to follow, because his glory is found in saving sinners. He died to make that possible. Trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that you are the God who is real, the true God. You're not the God of popular Christianity. We thank you uh, that you are the God who transforms and changes lives. And we ask this morning, please, that you might help us um, be transformed and changed by this experience of you. And Father, I, I, I want to pray for us right now that you would actually give us time to reflect and think. That Lord, as these guys come up and prepare, that you might just give us a time right now to pause and think about our lives. Brothers and sisters, take a moment. To think, why have you come to God? Why are you with God? Heavenly Father, we thank you that it's your glory to save sinners. And so we have hope. Amen.